Welcome to Stupid Not Stupid. I'm Matt, here with my man Jason, the co-host who the president always calls to save the world when Bruce Willis is unavailable. <laughs> Which doesn't seem to be very often. <laughs> <laughs> Just often enough is what I like to say. Uh, Jason, how you doing, my friend? Our second episode here in a row, separated by distance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, these uh, these holidays are uh, brutal on our, our getting together in the same room for recording. And I also keep just saying these like, ridiculous they're not counterfactual phrases i guess but it's just like what did i say last time we were separated by geography and now we're right. separated by distance <laughs> right. uh, platitudes this is ridiculous platitudes um i don't know what other thi- i don't know what we're going to be separated by next but i'm interested to find out as long as it's not emotional separation <laughs> <laughs> um speak speaking about uh separating ourselves from our emotions what are you drinking jason uh absolutely nothing original because this is still uh the holiday season and i literally mm-hmm. have not been to the store in like four days uh so i've got the end of that raging big bitch uh six pack and the katoctin creek ragnarok that i got for christmas so, so anyone who heard uh last week's episode uh already already heard everything they need to know about those drinks and if you didn't listen then you can learn what you need to know by going back and uh and listening to our uh, pre-human civilization episode from the That's previous right. week well uh, i do have something original i'm snowed in here on woodby island in the great pacific northwest i, I can't leave the house <laughs> so i, I found in the recesses of my family's uh, liquor cabinet, Whidbey's finest liqueur. Uh, so, <laughs> wow! He, and there was just there was just enough left in the bottom of the bottle to squeak it out. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's what uh, that's what I'll be um, numbing the pain of our pending extinction with. Wow, uh, that is as, true as, desperation, as count, my friend. As we count down to doomsday here, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I don't want to I, I don't want to go into our impending doom here, Jason, without uh, doing the, all the necessary mea culpas and correcting the record. Uh, So that means it's time for... Matt and Jason are stupid. You suck! As always, this is the section of uh, the show where we point out something that we got wrong in our previous episode or a mistake that we made or something that we said that was stupid, and uh, we we clean it up in the following week. So (laughs) (laughs) last week... Last week we had pre-human civilization. That- yeah, which actually has not been released yet, so I haven't yeah. heard it. Therefore, I assume that I was completely impeccable and have yeah. no mistakes whatsoever. I, I actually, yeah, <laughs> I didn't get, I haven't got deep enough into it to identify any mistakes yet. But I, I did want to make one point that was kind of like the principal point that I wanted to make in the episode, and then somehow we just got so deep into the conversation, or maybe I got so deep into the black velvet that I didn't make it. Uh, <laughs> I think that the, the the biggest flaw in both of the arguments or the analysis that you and I put forward through the course of that episode is that we were making assumptions that uh, whatever pre-human civilization that we were attempting to detect would suck as hard at civilization as we suck at civilization. <laughs> uh, basically, all of the indicators that we were looking for are based off of um, fucking up the planet. So I like to believe, uh, or at least I wanted to believe going into that, that perhaps whatever civilization predated humanity lived in harmony with the planet, lived in harmony with the environment, was totally sustainable, um, and had a population uh, that was harmonious with Mother Earth, thus making them even more difficult to detect. So I just wanted to get on the record with that, that I thought we left that one out from the last episode. Their entire technology was based on uh, on biological uh, formations anyways, and they were able to achieve uh, uh, transcendence and remove their spirituality from their bodies and transfer into the universe mm-hmm. and then all the rest of the, mm-hmm. the uh, technology just disappeared into the ether, right? It makes more and more sense the more we talk about it, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, I just wanted that on the record. So hopefully everyone gets a chance to go listen to our pre-human civilization episode and keeps that in mind uh, beforehand if they're hearing this one first. Um, but enough about last week. Let's talk about this week. And I guess it's uh, timely because uh, we're right in the neighborhood of uh, a release of, I guess, if something gets released on Netflix, Jason, is it, is it a Hollywood film or what do we what do we call it? Well, it was well, uh, technically it's a Hollywood film in as much as any Hollywood film is. I mean, most most movies are not shot in Hollywood anymore. Uh, the studios mm-hmm. are just located in Hollywood. I actually have no idea where Netflix headquarters is, but it's a movie. It's an American movie, and it stars a bunch of actors who star in lots of Hollywood blockbusters. So I'm going <laughs> to say it's a Hollywood film. Okay. All right. Well, we're talking about uh, Don't Look Up on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet. I understand the premise like of what it's about, but Jason, you've seen it. Uh, so for anyone who hasn't, what is, what is the premise of Don't Look Up? The premise is that a scientist and his pre-doc researcher, or maybe she's she is a pre-doc, discover a comet headed for Earth, and it's going to collide with the Earth in about six months. And the rest of the movie is basically about the two of them trying to get the world's attention to figure out what to do about this, to attempt to alleviate this this comet from destroying. It's a, the comet is like I think they said five to ten kilometers. Uh, in size. At some point in the movie, they refer to that as the size of Mount Everest. It is a planet killer. If it hits, uh, the chances of anything surviving on the, on, you know, the the uh, existence of life is going to decrease by about 95% at that point. So I think the premise of that matches up nicely then and brings us to our stupid, not stupid question. And I'm going to, let's get the acronym out of the way. When we say NEO, we mean near earth object. So Correct. here's here's my question for you, Jason. Stupid or not stupid, we could stop a Neo from hitting the Earth if we had to, whether it be an asteroid, a comet, a cherry red Tesla Roadster, whatever's floating around out there that if it strikes <laughs> the Earth, it would destroy us. We could stop it from striking the Earth. Uh, at At this precise moment... I would say that it depends entirely on what type of object it was, what the size of the object was, what the speed of the mm-hmm. object was, and how much uh, notice we had. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, man, even with lots of time and a relatively small object and you know uh, plenty of resources to, to throw at this, I still think that the chances are really not awesome. Okay. Well, uh, you named off a bunch of uh, scientific parameters there. You put out the data points. So let's work. <laughs> let's work through the data. Let's be good pseudoscientists here. Let's <laughs> let's work through the data and uh, see if we can make a definitive call on this one. Sounds good. So, uh, Jason, when we're talking yes. about neos, how many are out there? Uh, well, the first answer to that question is really unsatisfying. We don't know. Uh, right. We have, a, <laughs> as far as how many neos are out there, uh, the number is uh, is huge, like millions of of neos. But the ones that are at all dangerous to the Earth is a much smaller subset of that that group. You would be correct, Jason. We have absolutely no idea how many neos are actually out there. Uh, NASA has something called the Center for Near Earth Object Studies. Uh, they've identified 26,115 asteroids that pass near the Earth. And of that 26,000, approximately 2,000 are potentially dangerous to Earth. But that's only what's been identified and categorized and discovered. So, like you said, there could be way more out there. Right. And, and that's just but, asteroids. That doesn't include that, comets. It does, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing that's interesting about this is that number is fluctuating every day. I think we've said this before on the show, but what is the total tonnage of stuff 
that hits the Earth's atmosphere on a daily basis. There's some like insane statistic on this. We have said it and it's in, it is crazy. It's like twenty six hundred tons or something. Uh, it, it's a it's a really high number it, of stuff that comes from number. space to Earth. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was it, it was well over a year ago that we did an episode. It was one of our first episodes. Mm -hmm. We we did that yeah. number. But yeah. So all this stuff is hitting the atmosphere. And this is kind of the scale of how of the size things would need to be to actually make it to the surface for something to actually make it through the atmosphere and impact the surface, whether it be the ocean or land to impact the surface of the earth. It has to be at least the size of a marble. So most of the stuff that's hitting us isn't even the size of a marble. And that's happening yeah. regularly on the daily. Yeah, it's just dust, basically. Now, what's interesting is when you start talking about the marble size things, there are actually words that define what these things are. So when you hear the term meteor, that is mm -hmm. an asteroid, basically, or a piece of, of material, debris of some kind in space that hits the Earth's atmosphere at an angle enough to enter the atmosphere rather than skip off. And they tend to glow, so you can usually see them. A meteorite is a meteor that makes it uh, through the atmosphere, as I recall, and you may have better information on this than I do. It's been a long time since I read this stuff. I think a meteorite is something that makes it through the atmosphere, but not to the surface. Mm -hmm. And a meteoroid is what makes it to the surface. Though you I nailed might it, Jason. Okay. You, you nailed it, Jason. Good job. Good job. <laughs> so uh, that's that helps with the nomenclature. Let's finish going through size, and then we can talk about frequency. So the next kind of standard size of objects that are impacting the Earth, we kind of... that that's meaningful on the scale of uh, progression here would be something the size of a standard car. Uh, so this actually happens, I, I found this surprising, this actually happens about three times a year. So yeah. these are actually significant impacts, uh, but they mostly happen, obviously, we're 70 or what, two thirds, 66% uh, water. So almost all the almost all of these are happening either in remote areas or over the ocean. So they're not a big deal. But not that long ago, one about this size exploded in the atmosphere over Russia. And it's called the oh man, here we go again. I, I'm about to be two episodes in a row without being able to pronounce something. The Chebolinsk, Choibolinsk meteor? Chelyabinsk. Chelyabinsk meteor. So that's an example of one of these car-sized ones that can come in. And th this one detonated 30 kilometers actually in the atmosphere. So it didn't even strike the earth, but still did tremendous damage, shattering windows. It injured like 1,500 people and it exploded with the force. This is why we're lucky ex it exploded in the atmosphere as opposed to making an impact. It exploded with the force of 30 Hiroshima bombs. Yeah, these kind of impacts are common and are happening three times a year. And that's the kind of damage you can do with just something the size of a car. And that's, uh, as you said, this is something that exploded really high up in the atmosphere and the shockwave was still enough to do that kind of damage. Uh, and this happens more frequently than we tend to talk. Yeah, th th that that part of it really surprised me. And then we continue to move up the scale here. And you think about an object, maybe the size of a standard office building. So a 20 story office building. Um, and that's where you get into the territory of the Tung Tunguska event. Another one in Russia. I find it interesting when you, we're looking at these things on the scale of probability or we will as we go through this. And if yeah. you had to pick a country they were going to hit. Russia is the country you would pick because statistically it's the largest one, even though it would still be like, what, like a 6% chance that it struck Russia. And now right. both of these that we've talked about have struck have struck yeah. Russia. Um, but the Tunguska event in 1908 did the damage of a megaton level nuclear detonation. And it was approximately the size, like we said, of, of a 20 story building. Um, oh, luckily, yeah. the area where it hit was extremely remote. But, you know, because the earth is rotating, if it would have just been five hours earlier, it would have struck St. Petersburg and it was would have been 
probably one of the most significant events in human history. Oh, yeah. It was like a hundred square miles that it just completely leveled trees in a forest. And my recollection is, again, this one didn't actually hit the surface or very little of it made it to the surface. It was an airburst, but it was a, much larger than any nuclear weapon that we've we've tested. Right. It was huge. Yeah. And then it's not just the damage from the impact. It's all and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but it's all of the secondary effects that it caused. So the forest fires and all of the detrimental generational effects to the environment uh, still made this ex an extremely significant event. And we're not even on to the large size of these objects yet. Yeah, right. We're, we're far from the crowd pleasers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're moving on from kind of those, the, the buildings, uh, the building sized objects, and then things in the next category tend to come. I, I, I've seen some different kind of breakdowns here, but you're kind of looking at some people say one to three kilometers. Uh, other papers I read said anything between three to 10 kilometers. Those are in the uh, the sweet spot of what we call civilization killers. So not planet destroyers, not eliminating life, but the impact that they would, or the effects of the impact would be such that life as we know it would effectively be over, at least for humanity and most species. I think the fa the figure you said from the movie, um, they were looking at one that was 10 kilometers and we were saying 95% of life on Earth is, is pretty much done. So this is in that three to 10 kilometer range. So just to give you an example, uh, I'm actually sitting here staring at a chart uh, from a, a NASA report. So there's a, a congressional requirement that NASA uh, do a survey of all NEO objects up to a certain size in order to determine the risk so that Congress can you know, decide whether or not they want to spend yeah. money on figuring this out. Yeah. Before you go more into that, Jason, I was actually going to ask you about that congressional mandate. I took a peek at that real quick before this. Yeah. Uh, the mandate was uh, meant to categorize uh, or catalog 90% of NEOs by 2008. I just wanted to ask how we're doing real quick. Uh <laughs> Better than you would guess, but yeah, we're not. We didn't. We didn't hit the deadline for sure. Uh, okay. All right. Just checking. Sorry. Yes. Continue. <laughs> uh, so uh, the the good news is the way that this this chart that I'm, I'm staring at uh, is sort of broken up. It's sort of talking about a lot of the stuff we've already just discussed in this conversation. So the the Chelyabinsk meteorite from uh, 2013 that's in a category that basically says. Uh, so this is a, a 10 meter to 30 meter category of mm -hmm. object and the damage is small it's it's it will do property damage but it's not going it's it's not considered like a global threat right. now the the second region or the second group that they have on this chart is from 30 to uh, about 100 meters and the the 1908 Tunguska uh, meteor meteorite that you discussed uh, is right in that realm and that's considered the city destroying right. uh, equivalent so the end of the limit that Congress asked NASA to look at uh, was in the 160 to 400 or uh, 160 meter asteroids was about as big as they were looking at. I think so. They're not even looking at these kilometer size. That's right. Ones. That's right. Anything under 100, 100 or 150 meters, uh, they're they're like we we can't even be bothered with that, even though it could kill <laughs> a city. That's yeah. not what we're concerned with. These are region destroying. Uh, asteroids, uh, and that's the at, that's where the limit of uh, the survey is. Uh, okay. And at the moment, the, the the chart shows how many we found and an estimation of what the population is of these various sizes. And what we see is that I, the the chart I'm looking at is a couple of years old. We've certainly made progress since then, 
but the George Brown limit, oh, sorry, that, that's the name of the, the guy who had, that's the name that they used to discuss the survey that they're talking about. It was a George E. Brown survey. We had found basically 99 to 100% of everything that was a global killer or a continent killer. Well, we'd found basically 100% of everything that was a global killer. We'd found probably 85 to 90% of everything that was a continent killer. We'd found 70%, 75% of anything that was a regional killer. And then the numbers get really scary. Basically, we found anywhere from several hundred to a thousand different objects in these various size categories, 100 meter, 70 meter, 40 meter, 30 meter. But the percentage of the, the expected population of that drops to zero. Like it, it's less than 1%. <laughs> um, well, that's not terrifying at all. Uh, as we continue, <laughs> as we continue to go up the scale here, but uh, that and just just so we're clear too, for as a point of reference, in that that one to ten kilometer range where we kind of get off the chart of what they're tracking, but gets on the chart of you know causes tsunamis, forest fires, climate change on a scale that eliminates yeah. eliminates significant portions of life on Earth. That's what destroyed the dinosaurs. So that's that's the range that we're talking about. Yeah. Here. So that's 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 a ten kilometer or larger that was the the KT impact that uh, and again the movie that we we were referencing earlier uh that's on Netflix this month, that's the size that they were talking about. And then I think that there's evidence, I can't remember if it, this was the one in Africa or the one in Kazakhstan, but this has happened once before. There is evidence of one in the uh, in the range of 60 kilometers that struck Earth, and that's basically a sterilizing event that yeah. eliminates all life on Earth. Once you start talking about uh, objects of that size, it doesn't really matter what you are or what kind of life you are on the planet. You're just vaporized, essentially. Oh, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this chart that I'm looking at starts at 10 meter objects and goes up to 25 kilometer objects. So they don't even like at 60 kilometers. They're like, yeah, we're just done. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. So there, there, that's everything on size. Let's talk about frequency real quick. So yep. I guess let's limit it to we already kind of covered the smaller stuff. So let's just start at that one kilometer in the neighborhood of the size that it took to wipe the dinosaurs out, in my view, is probably it probably needed to be larger than what it would take to wipe humans out. Because I'm thinking of the downstream effects of an event like this, of the wars and the famine, and the drought that it would precipitate and all the societal problems. So for me, a species level threat object starts at one kilometer and those strike the earth approximately every 500,000 years on average. And right. then when we look at things that are like five that five to 10 kilometer range, it's once every 20 million years. Now, this is this is what's interesting. We all learned in school, the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs uh, is in that range and it struck 66 million years ago. That means we are 300 percent overdue for <laughs> one of these strikes to hit yeah. the Earth. Tick tock. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess maybe that's why uh, Leo Decap's latest film and this podcast are so relevant at the moment, uh, because uh, yeah, t time is uh, not on our side in this equation. Right. And I've already used that theme song. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, uh, up to this point, we've been talking about asteroids, but I think you pointed out at the beginning, Jason, there's there's other things out there, too. Uh, so what's the principal difference, uh, Jason, between an asteroid and a comet? So uh, an asteroid is predominantly rocky uh, and a comet mm -hmm. is predominantly icy, uh, though both can have ice or rock components to them. Um, mm -hmm. But the real issue with a comet is that it orbits the sun, and mm -hmm. as it gets closer to the sun, uh, it puts off a plume as the ice kind of melts. 
So comets, you would think as it gets closer to the sun, all the ice would melt and then it would just disappear. Well, we that does happen occasionally. As a matter of fact, that happened to a comet just a couple of years ago. It was a really cool thing that we were able to watch as a comet sort of died. But more often than not, what happens is these are very, very large orbits. So it comes by the sun very quickly and then goes far back out into the extreme uh, distance of the outer solar system. So it, it can be hundreds or thousands of years that this thing takes to orbit the sun. So that, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and I was reading, or I guess reading is a generous term. I was browsing this Harvard University uh, paper that came out, I think just a couple of years ago. Where no, some... Matt, you were doing your own research. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, where the, the authors of the paper put forward uh, this theory that actually the object that took out the dinosaurs wasn't an asteroid, but was uh, a piece of what's, what's been categorized as a sun grazer comet. So approximately 20% of the comets, they're called 200-year comets, so comets like ones humanity is aware of because we've been a re we've been paying attention long enough to record them and have a record of them. 20% uh, of them are, are sun grazers, which mean comets that come in close enough to the sun that chunks of them break off and go in trajectories that aren't part of the kind of more stable orbit, more predictable orbit, orbit that the source comet is on. So it yeah. becomes unpredictable. And this yeah, obviously that's is really a, scary. <laughs> yeah. And so this is, this is obviously a big problem with trying to detect uh, and calculate the probability of a near-Earth object hitting Earth, because all of a sudden, if that object breaks up really close to us and goes a hundred different directions with really little, with very short notice, um, it becomes real problematic uh, real quick. So that's just the other one, I, I, the other piece of the calculus, I think, to throw out there is we have all these asteroids going around, they're a little bit more predictable, and then we have the comets, that sh which are rarer and also predictable, the ones that we've been able to observe, but about 20% of the, of the comets we know about are these sun grazer comets that every time they go by the sun, they have a chance to basically fracture into really unpredictable, really close near-Earth objects. We kind of saw one something similar to this with the Schumacher-Levy comet back in the, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, it was a comet that broke up in Jupiter's gravity and plummeted into the, into the Jupiter atmosphere. And it was beautiful to watch and very cool because we were able to predict it and take pictures with it with the Cassini spacecraft and with the Hubble Space Telescope. But the amount of energy that was released when that thing hit the Jovian atmosphere, it was just astonishing. Like that thing definitely would have destroyed the planet. <laughs> it yeah. would have it would have killed life on Earth had it hit Earth. Uh, it was really, really impressive to watch. I guess this is maybe a good spot to stop before we move on to how we could stop the Neos from taking us all out and just give a quick shout out mostly to Jupiter and the moon, I guess, yeah. which save us from most of these. How does that work, Jason? Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. Uh, so the outer planets in general, but Jupiter in particular, uh, just has such a massive gravity well that most of the stuff coming from outside of Jupiter's orbit just gets sucked into Jupiter. Uh, it, it's right. it's sort of the, the, the solar system's vacuum cleaner. So the only thing that we really worry about are either comets that are coming from the other side of Jupiter's orbit, or we're worried about asteroids from you know the, the asteroid belt in between Earth and Mars, because you have collisions there occasionally that will send stuff our way. But some huge percentage of stuff that's coming from the outer solar system or from outside of the solar system just gets sucked up by by the gravitational pull of the uh, of the outer planets. Yep, and then the stuff that makes it by there, a lot of the time, the moon protects us as well. That's right. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've got a great record of that. The moon doesn't have the tectonic issues or the, the weather issues that we have on Earth that erase so much of our geology. Uh, you know, any- <laughs> I, love how, I love how you call them the tectonic and weather issues, otherwise known as the life-sustaining elements of our species. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, yeah. it depends on what you're trying to study. If you're studying life, yeah, they're... <laughs> so you can go, like one of the, the, the wonderful things about studying the moon is that you can go and study craters and figure out when they happened. And you actually see various periods of heavy bombardment and lesser bombardment. And that tells you a lot about what was happening in the solar system at that time. All right. So let's say that Jupiter drops the ball. The moon lets us down like it always does. Uh, what are we? <laughs> what, what can we do as a species, Jason? If one of these NEOs is coming, it's one kilometer or greater. We know that either its impact is going to cause such uh, strife or such extreme impacts that life on Earth is going to become unpleasant, if not untenable, (laughs) or it's of the size where it's basically going to wipe out uh, 95% of life on Earth over, you know, we're in that 25 kilometer range where it's a sterilizing event. What, if anything, could we do about it? Well, there's a scene in the the movie we've been discussing, Don't Look Up, where uh, one of the characters runs outside and pulls out his pistol and aims it at the comet and yells, you'll never take me alive and starts firing <laughs> his weapon into the air. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, that's yeah. our that's our second Don't Look Up reference. I can't believe we've made it half an hour without, without talking about Armageddon. Should we just start with Armageddon? <laughs> <laughs> would if we send Bruce Willis and Steve Buscemi up up to the asteroid, what would happen? Could we stop it? Can untrained oil drillers save the world, Jason? Well, well I guess they're trained oil drillers, untrained astronauts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I actually had this conversation at an airport coming back from uh, our time in in. Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I ran into a guy who was he wasn't an oil driller, but he was a miner. Please tell me he didn't watch Armageddon as a kid and was like, now I'm going to go straight into the oil drilling business. No, and no, no, no. I was totally inspired. <laughs> no, no. His family, uh, he came from a, a long uh, uh, line of miners uh, and he did gold mining, not uh, oil drilling. But okay. uh, he we got to talking about space stuff and uh he mentioned that that was his favorite movie because it took somebody with a drill who knew what they were doing. And I, my point to him was, I think it would actually be easier to teach an oil driller how to be an astronaut than it would be to teach an astronaut how to how to <laughs> drill for for oil on a on a comet. That said, isn't that the entire premise of that famous Ben Affleck like commentary on Armageddon where he's like watching it? He's like, now here's what's really stupid about this movie. I asked Michael why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than it was to train astronauts to become oil drillers and he told me to shut 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 the fuck up so that, that was the end of that talk he was like you know ben just shut up okay you know this is a real plan all right i was like you mean it's a real plan at nasa to train oil drillers he was like just shut your mouth <laughs> Right. Well, I think if you had a couple of astronauts on board to keep them alive, I think that that's Mm -hmm. actually probably true. Probably a more efficient way of of tackling it. Yeah. Okay. That said, we've flown robotic spacecraft past very small comets before. There is very little chance that you would be able to land a human-sized craft on a comet safely. uh, which is actually less ridiculous than launching two space shuttles right next to each other at the same time, which also happens in that movie. But, but well, what do they say in that movie? What's the quote? It's the size of Texas. What is this thing? It's an asteroid, sir. How big are we talking? Sir, our best estimate is 97.6 billion. It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. Y- y- yes, sir. 
Dan, we didn't see this thing coming. Well, our object collision budget's a million dollars. That allows us to track about 3% of the sky. And begging your pardon, sir, but it's a big-ass sky. Yeah, but it's the size of Texas if Texas was basically erupting rubble into space. In, like, I, I feel like you haven't constantly. been to Texas recently, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> would it, be like, it would be like trying to land an airplane on an erupting volcano. It's just, uh, it's, it's not a plausible occupation (laughs) (laughs) okay so so we're a little off track but the whole premise of armageddon is obviously they land on the asteroid they drill down to the fault line whatever that is because i guess that means there's tectonic activity on the asteroid like i don't i don't know what they meant by fault line but they yeah i don't they, they drill they drill into the surface of the asteroid drop a nuke down it and blow it up from the inside would that work uh it's hard to say because we've never done anything remotely like that before. Uh, it would depend on the composition of the comet. It would, so, mm-hmm. you know, you were talking about these comets that fracture as they get closer to the sun. You know, these things are made of ice and same thing with a lot of asteroids. In a zero gravity environment, it doesn't take a lot of mass to hold loose rubble together. So you've got some mm-hmm. asteroids that are basically made of solid iron or some comets that are made of you know solid ice, but you've got some that are just sort of basically groups of, gla- of gravel held together just mm-hmm. by a very loose conglomeration of gravity. Explosives have different effects on those types of substances. I think um, the the line from the end of the movie is like, we blew it right on the fault line. Most of it was vaporized and the two halves are going to miss us by whatever they said it was. Right. Um, and that was great for Hollywood. But I, I did read something. This was actually on this was on like a NASA asteroid fact website. This is like one of the random web pages that are out there that NASA maintains. And right. they said in most cases or I guess more likely than not. Any asteroid that you you blew up uh, in space would reform within two to eighteen hours, right? <laughs> just just yeah, due to the gravity of all the objects. So you could blow it up, and it would just kind of like be like this the scene from Terminator where they like take out Terminator Two, where they take yeah. out T Two for the first time, and he just kind of like morphs <laughs> back together, and you're like, shit. That's pretty much what we would go through just uh, on a I guess in space. That's right. Yeah. So the explosives route. Uh, it's plausible, I guess, depending on the type of object that was coming towards the Earth, but it's not the route you want to take. It's it, the last ditch effort. And it's it's basically what you do when you've dis- you detected this thing and you have two weeks to react. Right. Right. It's it's not what you would do if you had six months or 10 years or 20 years to react. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the other the other piece I saw on this from a timing perspective is basically this is your only hope if you don't have at least five years. Yeah, that's what I saw. You right. need f- anything else like you got to have at least five years to, to plan it out, build it, deploy it, get it out there in time. So well, if it's again, less than five years, we're, we're shooting missiles at it. Um, Sure. Um, Again, it depends on the size. It depends on, quite frankly, the political activity and how much money mm-hmm. the world is willing to throw at the solution. I, I think five years is a good rule let's, of thumb, but yeah, I think you could do it faster if, it, if the object were smaller. Let's shelve the political question for a minute because I want to get to that. Let's go through whatever any other potential kind of what are the scientific fixes to this? Sure. So we have we have tried to blow it up. I guess we haven't really talked about shooting 
a nuclear weapon at it or a bunch of nuclear weapons from the outside. So blowing it up from the inside, there's a high probability it's going to reform or reform in smaller pieces that are just region killers. Like what's more deadly, one planet killer or 15 region killers when we only have 15 regions? Right, um, yeah. yeah. Well, it depends so, on what region you live in, I guess. Right. <laughs> okay, so blowing it up Bruce Willis style with oil drillers from the inside, I guess not totally stupid, but... Yeah, it's not, not insanely not, not, stupid, but it's pretty it's, dumb. Yeah, it's, it's pretty dumb. Okay, so... so Besides that, what are, what are our options, Jason? Uh, there are a number of them. So you could theoretically try and basically catch it in a net and drag it. Uh, okay, so I, I read something like this. So it's catch it in a net and drag it or try to get an object with... Uh, with enough gravity next to it. And then if you move that object, it would have an impact uh, on the orbit was, of the object you're was, trying to move. Yeah, that's the next one. So I'm, I'm trying to go mm -hmm. from my least favorite to my most favorite. Uh, <laughs> okay. well, can, <laughs> can I cheat a little bit and just ask, do we currently have the capability to launch something with enough mass to do either of those things? That was the biggest problem that I saw with, with this potential fix, sending something to try to divert it either with a net or with gravity. The the mass and fuel required, one, to get, get it off the ground, and then the fuel it would take to actually execute the move. Is that even possible right now? Again, uh, it depends on the size of the object, and it depends on how much time we have. Because if you if catch something- it's at least something... one kilometer. So we, everything is at least okay. one kilometer so right it's now. it's at least one kilometer. If you had 20 or 30 years notice, you don't need that much mass to drag it off course. Mm -hmm. But if you have five years notice, you would need something half the size of the moon to drive it off course. And that's that's a non-starter, right? Yeah. And the thing that's scary about that, say it's the 20 to 30 year scenario, you know about this, Jason, the, the runway time for missions, right? So say we yeah. do that and we send it and then something goes wrong at like you're 17 on its way out there to rendezvous and all this, like you have to almost, you almost have to be working on plan C and D, assuming plan A is going to fail while it's on its way out. I, I assure you that the people who think about these things absolutely have that written into their plans. The question is whether or not the political apparatus that would be necessary to execute those plans would understand that. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So we, we could move it, but we're going to need really early detection and we're going to need to get a, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but everything right. is going to have to go right. We're going to have to have to a long runway and we can't make a mistake to either grab it with a net, which I don't even know. It sounds ridiculous. You might have to explain the physics of that to me, but I do understand the physics of getting a large object next to one object and then moving one and the gravity of that influences the thing it's next to. I do understand right. that. So with the net, basically, uh, you know, we know how to pack very, very large things into very, very small packages in space, opening it up. The deployment... Are you talking about when I got when I got fitted for my EVA suit, that, that <laughs> bulgy area right in front? Is that what you were? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was an opposite problem. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we've deployed sun sails. We've deployed large sheets in space. We've deployed large tethers in space numerous times. We understand basically how, how, that's, how these principles work. Uh, pretty well. If you're going towards something that's coming at you, the f you don't have to slow down to get there, right? Like if you just shoot a net out at a slightly different angle than this thing, than this thing's trajectory, the sheer momentum of the net is going to actually move it slightly. So the net, uh, 
I don't want to say it's more or less pl plausible than a gravity tractor. I think the gravity tractor is a, a more elegant solution than a net, uh, and there are far far fewer things that go wrong because mass is mass, and a net mm -hmm. has to deploy and do all kinds of crazy stuff. I, I um, think you just got another another logo for a future T-shirt. Mass is mass. <laughs> <laughs> But both of these actually uh, are less elegant than my all-time favorite solution. And my favorite solution has to do with the solar wind. And any kid who has ever had a solar, uh, what are those things called? A solar spinner, the, the, the little thing in a, in a glass vacuum where you've got the, the little panels that are black on one side and white on the other. Mm -hmm. And you shine light on it and the, the black receives the light far more than the white does. So it, it gets the thing to spin. I don't know. I don't know what it's called, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, it's been so long since I saw one of those in grade school. But basically, you can do the same principle. Space is basically a giant vacuum, right? Uh, it is a giant vacuum. That's the definition of space. So if you just took basically a, a satellite with a whole bunch of white sp spray paint or black spray paint, and you just went up and you tagged whatever the thing is that was coming at the Earth on one side, the solar wind will take care of the rest of this. Do you know what I, you know what I love about this being <laughs> your favorite before I ask you about a couple more is there is literally a scene in Armageddon where they propose this. It's like the opening scene. They're like telling Billy Bob Thornton and like there's some like guy like in the he's like this chubby old dude in the obligatory NASA white button up, but with the short sleeves and the black tie. And right. he, he shows like the lander coming onto the asteroid and he says something like solar wind will be caught in our white sails. And he display like stretches it out over the model and Billy Bob Thornton is like, come on, guys, I need something serious. <laughs> yeah. So I love well, that your favorite solution is, is the one Billy yeah. Bob Thornton crapped all over for like three <laughs> seconds in Armageddon. Well, of course, so. he was talking about a white sail and I'm talking about just spray painting the damn the thing. Spray painting. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, what I'm about tagging it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about an impactor? So there's a mission going right now, Jason, to, to strike an object. Literally, uh, they came up with a name. It's not like bullet or something, but like literally like the acronym was like bullet. I can't remember, but we're literally just going to shoot like a, like a, a, a projectile at an object. We know how dense it is. We know its mass, see how much it moves and then do the math and stretch it out. How much of an impactor would we need to move something by a certain amount of degrees? Like how realistic is just like crashing into it? Yep. So this is the DART mission. Uh, I can't remember the what the D... That's what it was. I was trying to say bullet, but it's DART. Yeah. yeah. No, I can't remember what the D stands for, but it's, it's a kinetic moon, impactor. It? D is uh, for Diddy it, Moon, isn't it? It may be, but uh, yeah, D the ART Diddy Moon, is, by the is, way, is the coolest name of any object in space, in case anyone was wondering, Diddy Moon. <laughs> right. But the, the ART is Asteroid Redirection Test. I think the D might actually be for like direct. I like Diddy. Well, the thing it's going to hit is Diddy Moon. Well, yes. So uh, there's <laughs> the asteroid Diddy Mose. And there is a much smaller asteroid that orbits Didymos, which is makes it a moon of an asteroid. So it is the Diddy Moon. Uh, it it actually has its own name, and I can't. I just found out what it was like last month, and I don't remember. So so the satellite will go up with an impactor. It will shoot the impactor into the moon, and then we will be able to measure how much of an impact, how much of an effect that had on the orbit of the moon around the asteroid. And before anybody gets concerned, there is zero chance that this thing will then crash into the asteroid and then direct the asteroid to the <laughs> Earth, which were questions that uh, apparently came up a lot in congressional visits having to do with this this meeting or with this this mission. No, all of that has been considered and it's, there's zero risk of any of that. But this is very much a test. It's a, it's a technology demonstration mission 
to see if this is a thing that works. You know, the the other things that we've been discussing, you know, I, I said with the nuclear explosion, we've just never tried it, any of this stuff before. So you're asking me what the best method is. Nobody has any idea what the best method is. We only, I only have my favorites because I like the the engineering elegance of them, and I find that you know firing a, a steel rod into an asteroid less elegant than spray painting the asteroid. But <laughs> I don't really care which one works. Whatever one works best, let's do that. <laughs> this, this is this is way off topic. But speaking of uh, the fact that we just haven't tried shooting a bunch of nuclear weapons at an object in space yet to see what happens, wasn't there like a Werner von Braun model that? he proposed at some point where there was a spacecraft that would just drop nuclear weapons out behind it as it went and then ride yep. the shockwave of the detonation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, uh, Freeman Dyson's son wrote a book about this. It's called uh, Project Orion, not to be confused with the current human spaceflight Project Orion. <laughs> um, uh it was a book. It came back. It came out back in the early 2000s. It's a fascinating read. I highly recommend it for anybody who wants to check it out. But yeah, it was the most insane project ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking of insane projects, then the last one I want to bounce off of you, and uh, hopefully this wouldn't bounce off the asteroid. The the one I saw a lot of uh, was lasers. Could we just use a laser to superheat it or split it in half? Is there any scenario here in which laser technology can save us from a uh, ex extinction level object coming towards Earth? Again, it depends on the size and the amount of time that we have. So as of right now, I would argue that the other methods that we've, we've discussed are probably more plausible just because we don't have a laser developed and that technology would take up. That's, that's, I think, probably the longest lead time of anything that we've talked about as okay. far as technology development goes. That said, if you had a strong enough laser and a long enough time period by firing the late, you could, you could achieve the same thing as spray painting the the asteroid and letting the solar wind take care of it and it arguably depending on the strength of the laser could be as or more effective the real problem is the distances you're talking about even firing them through through space meant lasers lose coherence over distance even mm -hmm. in in a vacuum and you would need an awful lot of power behind that laser to make that effective so, so what you're saying is when dr evil was going to shoot a laser at the moon and blow it up that that wasn't going to work uh, no, that was that that was pretty implausible. <laughs> um, he would need basically uh, 10 times the electricity that we have generated since humans, human beings have been generating electricity to actually make that work. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that goes back to uh, remember the, the guy we've talked about before who does the what if book, like if everyone got in one spot on the whole planet and jumped like what would right. happen? <laughs> he did one on uh, what would happen if everyone got together with like a pen light and everyone shot it at the moon at the same time. Like yeah. also nothing would happen. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, OK, so that those are all the kind of scientific I guess, solutions, but also barriers. But now I want to ask you about what I think the big one is, and it's what you've already mentioned. I want to ask about the political barrier to this. So before I ask you the final stupid, not stupid question, I just want to pose this scenario to you. So let's say we detect a one kilometer or larger Neo object, and let's give ourselves a large one right here. Let's say that it's at least 10 years out, 15 years out. I mean, we've got time where kind of every theoretical solution is on the table, but we try to calculate out the likelihood that it's going to hit Earth. And let's say that it's not even that high. Let's say, even though I think this is high, let's say 15%. Let's say there's this object coming. There's a 15% chance it's going to hit Earth. In order to try to mitigate that risk, we have to quadruple 
triple, maybe even just double taxes in the United States. Like it will require such a financial investment. We have to double all US taxpayers' tax bill. And even then, the likelihood will be decreased at best from 15 to 5%. Do you think domestically, politically, that's a pill that our current political system could swallow? If you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said yes. Right now, I said absolutely not. Uh, and like, yeah, the pandemic yeah, I mean, the pandemic is what's changed my mind. The thing that I think makes me sad thinking about it is how quickly it would become a political issue. Like one party will be the party of stop the asteroid and the other party will, party will be the party of, um, you know, God will save us or uh, right. it's not worth the financial investment or, um, you know, just wasting our tax dollars on frivolous, low, out, low, low likelihood right. things. Well, um, the argument that there's an 85 percent chance that it'll miss. These people just yeah. want your money because they're scientists and that's how they make a bunch of money. Like that yeah. argument is idiotic. This is a low probability, high impact event. You know, if you've got cancer and you've got an 85 percent chance of of surviving it without chemotherapy, you still go get chemotherapy. <laughs> right. Is... Yeah. So, so I think I have to agree with you on this one. This is why I think this is a sad statement for me to make. I don't think the science matters, Jason, because oh, I, I honestly, I, I honestly don't think politically it would have to be kind of like uh, our yearly budget cycle, or like the quote unquote fiscal cliff we run into all the time. I think in, in order to have a better chance of surviving it, we'd have to actually find it when it was too late. Like we have to find it inside the five years where there's no choice but to deal with it. Oh, I, I completely agree. When you were talking about 10 or 15 years out, I was like, well, then we're screwed because the, you can't get Congress to pay attention to something 10 to 15 years out. Yep. You just like unless NASA discovered it 25 years out and said within 10 years, we have to start upping our budget. I, I think mm -hmm. that there are ways to do it within the federal government that don't involve Congress's timelines. Man, when your money is based on an electoral timeline, these people just don't care about things that are that are outside of a two or four year timeline. And, and then what happens when the the pro stop the asteroid party wins, spends a bunch of money, the anti stop the asteroid party gets angry, runs on that, gets them out of office, comes in, cancels the whole program. And then we have to <laughs> it's just start, yeah. stop, start, stop, start, stop. Yeah. It'll just be like everything else. So we've now mentioned this movie a number of times. Like, it was not my intention to do this because the movie came out last night. It's really sort of serendipitous that we're doing the topic on the same time. Ta at the careful same time on spoilers, the Jason, because I'm going to go watch it after this. But go ahead. Right. But this is basically what that movie is about. It's to, to a ludicrous degree. I mean, this is very much mm -hmm. satire about it. So it's not talking about the budget cycles that you and I are talking about, but it is talking about like political considerations and this idea that if it's something that you can't change easily, and I think that this is, you know, I've seen a number of articles about, uh, you know, the anti-vax movement and uh, the, the people who refuse to get vaccines for the, the pandemic. A lot of it has to do with this, like, if you feel like it's out of your control, then suddenly you tend to narrow your position and just try and deal with what you can have some form of control over. It's a very human reaction. I get it. But it's also incredibly self-destructive. Okay, well, with uh, and, that uh, with that mood killer <laughs> hanging over us, Jason, <laughs> uh, stupid or not stupid, we could stop a near-Earth object from striking the Earth if we so, detected it. Stupid or not stupid, uh, it's not stupid that we could. I think it is stupid that we would. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the most de depressing conclusion that we've reached yet in the show, but I, I, I have to agree with you. I think that, God, man, and it just... I hate to keep harping on this, but it's the pandemic. You're right. Like the pandemic yeah. has made me realize I don't think we could do it. It's yeah. it, it's, it makes me really sad.
Yeah. Like I say, if you'd asked me this question 10 years, five years ago, I would have said, yeah, of course. How could yeah. we not? Nope. No problem. Now, I'm like, mm, I don't see any way that we could. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. OK. All right. Well, you got anything else on this one? Uh, like I said, uh, I mentioned the term earlier, low probability, high impact event. Uh, I try to focus on the low probability aspect. <laughs> <laughs> well, spe- speaking of uh, certain probability, I just want to share with our all of our listeners that on Friday, April the 13th, so on Friday the 13th, 2029, <laughs> uh, the Earth will experience a close encounter with asteroid 999 and i wonder if this was uh discovered by a german astronomer and he was like no 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 <laughs> but uh, asteroid or you ran it upside down right? <laughs> yeah. asteroid 99942 apophis oh man um, this is in the 340 meter category, so we're we're talking uh, city killer potentially. Uh, it'll pass within 19,000 miles or 31,000 kilometers of the Earth, and just Ooh. for perspective, uh, that is inside the orbit of most satellites. So it will yeah. pass between the satellites that you're listening to this podcast through and our planet. Yeah, for anybody who's a baseball f- fan, that is definitely a pitcher trying to get you off the plate. <laughs> <laughs> So I just, because we haven't been depressed enough by this one, I just wanted to share that with everyone uh, because you have until Friday the 13th, 2029 uh, to dig your bomb shelter. And I'm sorry, Jason and I don't have any room for you and ours. So (laughs) good, good, good luck, listeners. Until next time. 